Hello and welcome to our podcast, Gurus at Dawn. My name is Elisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today the title of our episode is The Progression of Oppression. And we're going to be taking a look at how the 13th Amendment loophole is used to enforce modern day slavery. Please be advised, we are going over some history, but much of these issues are contemporary, so therefore, this episode will be more of a social commentary with some history to back it up. Because of this, it may not feel like our normal lectures. Yes, and with that said, let's get started. So, the 13th Amendment loophole. You might wonder what that's in reference to. Or maybe you've seen the Netflix original 13th, which is really good, and if you haven't watched it, you should. But yeah, so let's go ahead and read out straight from the Constitution itself what the 13th Amendment says. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. All right, well, just a little side note. How gross is it that they were like, <laughs> you know what we should do? We should make sure that we say subject to their jurisdiction, because that way we can really cover ourselves even in the places that we colonize. Ahaha, <laughs> America rules, manifest destiny and stuff in my right high five. But anyway, let's just take a hot second here. It says, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. And that right there, friends, is the 13th Amendment loophole laid out in its entirety. In this form of slavery, using convicts to fill the void that slavery left was used right away. A topic that has come up a lot in our podcasts already, sharecropping. Sharecropping was deconstructed slavery in its most apparent form in many ways. It wasn't even trying to pretend that it was anything else. Landowners would have their land worked by people who they bailed out of prison and made them work to repay their debt, which they would never be able to pay as the landowners did not pay nearly enough, let alone a reasonable wage. And never forget, people, most of whom were overwhelmingly black, were stuck owing this life-size debt to the landowners and were often charged with minor and meaningless offenses. Many were nonviolent and posed few, if any, legitimate threats to society, but they were found guilty in court by a jury of which was consistently white people, and in the South in particular, it is more than safe to assume that they were white people who held strong prejudices against black people, meaning that, regardless of whether they were guilty or not, they would of course be charged as guilty. So sharecropping wasn't just evil landowners taking advantage, it was indeed that, but it was also enforced legally too. Black people were being targeted by law enforcement to be picked up on minor offenses, then, they were tried in a court that was insurmountably stacked against them, which found them guilty, and then their bail was set to an insanely high amount that there was no way for them to pay, which led to them being forever indebted to the rich landowner taking advantage of the system, which is why what we see to this day is not just oppression, but systemic oppression. Exactly. And you might be thinking... Um, excuse me, Ren, 
Um, sharecropping isn't a thing anymore, so why is it still an issue of systemic oppression? Well, boy, have I got some answers for you, you dear imaginary person who asked me that question. Let's skip forward a bit, shall we, and visit a lovely and completely laughable concept known as the war on drugs. Ah, the war on drugs. Where to even begin with you, you tricky little demon? First of all, y'all know who started this little campaign? Well, none other than our dear pal, President Nixon. In 1971, he declared drug abuse as, quote, public enemy number one. And, okay, drugs. Listen, let's not sugarcoat anything here. Drugs are super freaking bad for you. Addiction is no joke and legit is a bad thing that people struggle with, especially when they have undiagnosed mental illnesses like depression and anxiety, which shouldn't be taken lightly. But see, that's exactly why it's the perfect tool. Because who is going to argue that drugs are a good thing that we definitely should have more of? Like, no one. But you might still be confused on how the war on drugs was weaponized to police systemic racism. And it might seem like a bold statement from left field. But let's lay out some of the solid evidence that we have for this being true. Firstly, by building a deep stigma around drug use, it all of a sudden becomes way more acceptable to issue serious major legal punishment for those found guilty of participating in the binding of selling of drugs and the use of drugs. People could be locked away for life and their bail would be set incredibly high, just like with sharecropping. And Nixon and his campaign were strategic in which communities they targeted the most. So by placing this insane stigma, not just on drug use, but also fueling unfounded stereotypes and targeting specific communities for drug use, there entails another way of weaponizing it. Because now it serves as a cozy little front for Nixon to over-police certain communities more than others. Also, before you fall into that misled notion that drugs and drug use is more prevalent and poor in minority communities, you're wrong. Time and time again, statistics have shown that drug use is present in pretty much all communities across the board at the same rate. So if that's the case, if drugs are used in every community, why do we see such a discrepancy within the numbers of who is being picked up and charged for drug-related offenses? Well, let's state the obvious about Nixon and his campaign. He had two major groups causing his conservative administration some serious grief. The anti-war new left and the black community. And I know that that might seem like a big leap, but there is actually a ton of evidence to back this up. And some of this evidence takes form in verbal confirmation of his intentions. There is a pretty famous quote from Nixon's domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman. When asked about Nixon's true desires about the war on drugs, he is on tape saying this. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. I mean... You can't make that stuff up. It's just disgusting. But you know, Nixon wasn't the only president to make it clear that the war on drugs was continuously used to specifically oppress predominantly black and poor communities. When President Reagan was elected, he made the war on drugs a big priority. Um, well, Ren, you don't know that he had the same intentions as Nixon? Uh, just because he took a strong stance on drugs doesn't mean that he was trying to specifically oppress black people. Shush, random person! It does, and I will tell you how I know that. In 1986, under Reagan's administration and approval, Congress passed the Anti-Drug Act. 
This act established and strengthened mandatory minimum prison sentences for very specific drug offenses. Among its effects, the act very seriously targeted black communities over others with its strictness surrounding crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. And I don't know how much you already know about drugs, but I will make this clear for you. Crack and powder cocaine are literally, by all standards, the same. It's just one is ground up into a powder and the other isn't. That's literally it. Oh, and there is one other difference too. Powder cocaine was the drug of choice for rich white people, while crack cocaine was more common in predominantly black and poor neighborhoods. And in this anti-drug act, a person found with just five grams of crack would be served with an automatic five-year sentence. But for powder cocaine, it took 500 grams to receive the same sentence. So yeah, that is not something that happens by accident. These are calculated decisions that yield purposeful outcomes. And the purpose behind them is to help instill this ever-present inequality among races and keep white supremacy firmly planted. That is made even more clear when you take a look at different types of drugs, namely marijuana. The prosecution of weed is very revealing when it comes to priorities of politicians. If you look at the effects of marijuana in the context of medicine, it's very clearly a much more healthy alternative to other forms of treatment. It can be offered as a form of pain relief. People can use it when they're struggling to sleep or eat. It can soothe mental illnesses like high anxiety and depression. And that's merely one layer of the useful properties it has. Hemp has so many applications. It can be used as an essential oil and a source of protein in food. It has wonderful properties for promoting skin health and hygiene with lotions, shampoos, and face washes. All these great qualities also have little to no risk of addiction like some other drugs and medicine have a side effect of. It may be tempting to think that these uses are something that has only recently been discovered, so they couldn't be held accountable for treating it like other hard drugs back in the 70s during the war on drugs. But honestly, that's not really a solid argument. Like most drugs, cannabis has been used for medicinal purposes for thousands of years, dating as far back as around 2700 BC in China, and maybe even before then. And furthermore, in November 1976, there was an instance of a man named Robert Randall who won a legal case in the United States that allowed him to use pot to help treat his glaucoma. And his argument was based on medical necessity. And yet, the Controlled Substances Act of 1970 had deemed marijuana as a Schedule One drug, which meant that it was to be treated as a highly addictive and easily abused drug. So why are we seeing such a distinctive difference of the facts behind weed being safe versus how it is viewed both legally and socially? Why has it historically been described as a gateway drug when it is often the very opposite of that as it is used to help ease addicts off harder drugs? I think a lot of that can be contributed to the deep-seated racism that comes attached to it. Not too long ago, when the war on drugs was raging at its highest point, and even in the last few decades, possession of weed has cost people an incredibly high prison sentence. It has led to the disgusting practice of stop and frisk and the consistently ever-growing over-policing of predominantly black and poor neighborhoods. And yet, today, 
With the legalization of medical marijuana becoming more widespread throughout the nation, we see it offering a brand new kind of industry in its wake. Its properties are being explored like never before, and you find many dispensaries doing very well economically. This is not necessarily a bad thing. It's good to see this being explored, though it holds some pretty problematic connotations. Across the board, this new industry is being dominated by middle class and wealthy white people. Weed is also becoming less and less accessible to working and lower class people as the cost has skyrocketed. So now, an overwhelmingly white community has profited from pot, while to this day, there are people still sitting in jail for nonviolent offenses involving possession of marijuana. It honestly feels like a deep form of gentrification, but like for an industry. If you aren't aware of what that term means, its official definition is the process of renovating and improving a house or district so that it conforms to middle class taste. And that's a really fancy way of describing when wealthy, mostly white people see the potential of a low income area and decide they want it. You know, like colonization. And so then they move into the area and renovate everything and make it look really pretty and nice. Of course, then the local population can't afford to live there anymore and they get essentially run out of town by the richies who decided to stay. And I say that it bears a resemblance to industry-based gentrification because as a response to this, lower-income people again have to often turn to technically illegal means of buying and selling weed because of the inflation that has resulted from its legalization. And again, the use of weed is pretty even throughout all different communities, so by no means was weed something only black people use. The differences, due to unfair conditions involving stop and frisk and over-policing, a disproportionate amount of black people are sitting in jail for doing the same thing many white people are profiting off of today. But now that we've brought prisons back up, let's go back to what we were talking about in the beginning of the episode and how that plays in to the 13th Amendment loophole in modern times. First of all, there are some states that don't legally have to pay their inmates a dime for their work. In Texas, Georgia, and Alabama, prisoners aren't paid for their work at all. And I'm sure that that comes as a surprise to no one that those are the states participating in something like that. But let's not act like it's just the mean old South back at it again, because that's something that people do a lot. We low-key treat the South as a whole, like people watching Gone with the Wind treat Scarlett O'Hara. It's like, oh, Scarlett, she's a horrible person and known slaves, but we love her for it. Just look at a spunk and a fiery personality. That's the same energy with the South. It's like, oh, Southerners, you know them, still carrying around their Confederate flags and literally not paying their inmates a penny for forced labor, but that's the good old South. We love them for it. Just listen to their funny sayings and their down-to-earth attitude. Plus, their comfort food is something else. But see, it's not just the predictable South that participates in prison labor in other ways. Because even the states who do pay their prison workers something, it's still a ridiculously low amount overall, which allows any company or even state to profit at an insane degree by using prison labor. In fact, one of the biggest offenders as a whole state also happens to be one of the most liberal states too, California. They have saved millions over the last few years alone by using 
using prison labor as firefighters, especially during efforts of trying to stop wildfires. And before you think, yeah, so why does it matter that inmates aren't getting paid? Why do prisoners need to make money? Well, first of all, be aware that if you do have that thought, it is a direct byproduct of the people in power using targeted language to make literal slavery sound acceptable, but we'll get into that a little later in a future episode. But second of all, there are actually several concrete reasons why it's a problem, and I can tell you them right now. If you're not familiar with prison life, something that you might not know is that inmates need money to get basic necessities. They have to buy toothpaste, and other hygiene products, and yes, that does include pads and tampons for people who routinely have heavier period flow. So they've got to make money. But the thing is, they get paid next to nothing, like I mentioned before. And a few extra pads might cost a person $5. But when you are only getting paid the national inmate average, which is about 60 cents an hour, which many don't even have to pay that much, those few extra pads that are necessary for health would cost you at least eight hours of work to earn. And I think there is often still hesitation from people to feel overly sympathetic to the struggles of inmates because of how they have all been vilified in such a deep way to help make this seem okay. But let's take a moment and put aside the fact that we as a society hold such strong prejudice about prisoners, and let's again put aside the additional fact that several of them are surviving insanely long sentences for nonviolent crimes like possession of marijuana. Let's not talk about how innocent a person is and focus on one huge thing that is routinely overlooked. The American justice system is meant to operate and function in a way that promotes two things, punishment and rehabilitation. But instead, what we see time and time again is that it only produces punishment. See, the punishment is meant to be fulfilled by losing privileges, like being removed from society and made to live in a place that functions separately from the outside world. But instead of also offering room for rehabilitation, the system becomes more based around punishment, as that is the part that is the most profitable. Which is why there is so much evil in the privatization and for-profit industry of the justice system. Yes, and let's go into that a little bit more and talk about what we mean by profiting off of the justice system. First of all, we've talked about how important it is for inmates to work and make money, though they are rarely paid enough. Common ways of earning money are often performing jobs either in prison itself, like the kitchen, or the laundry room, or custodial work. But they can also be forced into other forms of labor too, like they might be used as they were in the wildfire relief in California. Or companies might use them to make clothing, or they might work other jobs that are labeled as unskilled work. Which we've talked about why that term is straight up trash before in our white supremacy unit. But yeah, unskilled work is literally not a thing. It's just a way to make it seem okay that people are getting severely underpaid. But anyway, exploiting inmate workers for little to no pay is not the only way companies profit off of inmates. People can send money to their loved ones who are currently serving time. 
but they can often only do so if they use a company that acts as a middleman. And the companies have a crazy handler's fee where only a portion of what you send will actually get to the person it is intended for. And that fee can be as high as 45%. One of the major offenders of this practice would be the company JPay. Another company, Securus Technology, charges inmates for phone calls, and those rates can get pretty steep pretty fast. And whatever feelings you might personally have about the quality of life inmates may or may not deserve, studies have shown how vital it is for people to keep strong ties to their connections outside of prison. When serving time, Frequent communication with loved ones reduces risk of discipline issues, chronic depression, and other mental illnesses. Furthermore, maintaining good relationships in the outside world serves as an amazing way to keep them from returning to prison. If they have family and friends waiting for them, they will face less chances of ending up homeless and may have better success at finding and keeping a job. And that's not to mention the emotional support and nourishment they receive through being able to visit with those they hold dearest to them. Some inmates find themselves living for the cherished phone calls and other forms of communication. Which, by the way, along with charging high amounts for phone calls, Securus Technologies also has made prisons eliminate face-to-face visitation, literally keeping inmates away from loved ones just so they can make a pretty penny. What you might be picking up on here is how there are several different things happening that heightens risk of bad behavior from inmates and even stress that could lead to them becoming reoffenders. People are serving unfair sentences for nonviolent crimes that today would not lead to imprisonment. Inmates need money for basic necessities but are not being paid enough, if at all, which prisons can get away with easily by tapping into the 13th Amendment loophole. When they are fortunate enough to have people on the outside who care about them enough to send money, they still are often not helped enough because of companies that overcharge. When serving time, some prison systems keep them from having face-to-face visits with their loved ones, which increases their risk for bad behavior and struggles once they have served their sentence. This all absolutely plays into systemic oppression, but in ways that seem so different from the outside. You know how back in the slave era, people would call slavery a necessary evil that was needed to help the economic system thrive? Well, that is still exactly what we see today, only in hidden language. If you asked the companies that profit off of the justice system like this, nine times out of ten, they would likely see nothing wrong with their actions. Even with securist technologies, they easily explain away their reasoning behind their demand for contractual obligation of eliminating of physical visits with the prisons they work with. They chalk it up to a way to reduce the risk of contraband being brought in. But studies have shown that contraband is far more likely to be brought in from guards and other staff members that work in the prison as opposed to family and friends on visitation days. So that is yet another front. And then they also have the excuse that capitalism offers. They simply are taking advantage of a market that allows them to make the demand for their products and services more needed. Which, from a business standpoint, many people who are okay with this kind of strategy might even commend them for it. But the biggest 
obvious outcome of the businesses who profit off of the prison system like this, and that is also including prison labor for other jobs too, contributes to consistently keeping inmates from ever making a better life for themselves. It further entrenches their risks for becoming lifelong prisoners, i.e. lifelong slaves. And that's just the surface of this whole thing. We've yet to bring up the school-to-prison pipeline or even how the black image in the United States plays into this, but that is what we're going to be talking about next week. So we're going to wrap it up here, friends. We're going to take a break, get some tea, and we'll be back in a moment. And now a message from our sponsors. This week is brought to you by Rin's Diffuser. Do you find yourself despising when your surrounding areas smell? Do the wafts of unpleasant aromas disrupt your peace of mind? Well, Ren can relate. Like any decent person, Ren is deeply disturbed when her nose is met with any sense outside of Japanese cherry blossom trees, white gardenia gardens, lavender chamomile, and frankincense and mirth. If you want to make sure that she can continue to afford her fragrance oils to keep her peace of mind intact, you can donate at Ren and Elisa's Ko-Fi, which can be easily found on any of their social media platforms. Ren's Diffuser. Smelling nice has a high price. All right, we're back. So, Lisa, what kind of tea are you drinking? I'm having honey chamomile. Nice. Um, it's an herbal tisane. And I'm sure most of you have had chamomile because it's a pretty popular herb. It's really nice for winding down after such a heavy episode. What are you having over there, Rin? I am having Lady Grey, my go-to favorite. Um, Always soothes my mental bruises. Do you have an artist this week, Elisa, or did you just, like, forget? <laughs> I both have an artist and forgot. <laughs> No. Uh, My artist this week is Ashley Ahrens. She goes by AMAart75 on Instagram. And she describes herself as a visual artist creating figurative works with a strong influence of Black culture. And wow, she is just such a great artist. The range. She uses different mediums, both digital and traditional. And the artwork is gorgeous. It's hard to convey visual art when all I'm using is this my voice, but I will say she uses expressive color, often having bursts of fully saturated color dispersed throughout the piece. And most of her work is semi-realistic, but she does have some more illustrative work and some more abstract work as well. Definitely check out her Insta, which will be linked on our social media and in the show notes. Oh my gosh, Elisa, do you have like an art degree or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's just chilling in my room. That's so crazy because my artist also has an art degree. Um, so I guess I'll just tell you about my artist. My artist this week is Elisa Austin. <laughs> Y'all know her? <laughs> She's actually amazing. Her favorite media is watercolor, although let me tell you, that is... Might be her favorite, but she's awesome at so many other art medias too. Her art style is very whimsical and effortlessly natural in its flow. While she is not shy when it comes to using bright, vibrant colors, she has a way of just making your whole heart feel so soft when she uses washed out faded color palettes. Please go check out her actual art pages, but also there's another reason why she is my artist for this week. Because believe it or not, y'all, we have merch out right now. Yes. That's right. (laughs) Girl, we have merch. (laughs) And if you're 
you're interested in it, you can check it out at Redbubble. Please, please, please go look at them. She did so well. She has not one, but two kick butt art styles. That's right. I said kick butt instead something else, but just, you know, sub it. You know what I'm trying to say. But yes, check it out. Two awesome art styles. They're really fun. That's it. <laughs> is it weird hearing about yourself? Like, it is. Well, <laughs> Also, on the topic of merch while we're here, I activated the designs on as many different things as I can so that there's a wide range depending on not only your budget, but on what you want. Like, it has everything from stickers to coasters to clocks to comforters. And the price ranges are really reflected in that. So if you do want to support us, we get a portion of proceeds of the proceeds from these items and definitely check them out. It ranges from $1.25 for the stickers all the way to, I think, a little over $100 for the comforter. So there's definitely something for everyone's budget. These are fun styles to have, whether you like the show or not, or like listen to the, I mean, you wouldn't know about it unless you listen to the show, but seriously, like, You could get them as a gift and it's still something people would really enjoy. There are journals. There are water bottles. There are tea mugs. That's right. I said tea mugs. You can get tea mugs with our faces on them. What? But yeah, so definitely check it out. I guess we should go ahead and just uh, get into the activist for this week. Alisa, take it away. Okay. I'm really excited to talk about her. Our activist is T, also known as T Noir on YouTube. And I have absolutely adored her from the second I found her channel channel. It's a commentary channel and she covers some society and culture in her videos and her social commentary and analysis is amazing. She's not afraid to call out other people's problematic actions, but she's also calling out herself and confronting her own internalized biases. She's very intelligent and her ideas are well-developed. I would say one thing that she has said that I definitely want to echo is that we should be careful not to tokenize her as the voice of all Black people. She can't speak for the whole community and neither can I because Black voices are not a monolith. And towards that end... I 100% recommend you check her out and get another perspective on black culture and issues besides my own. Plus, she's just amazing. (laughs) She's amazing. Big hard crush. Anyway, (laughs) so I guess I will talk about news. So for news this week, you have probably already got wind of the story that we're going to be talking about. That would be the wrongful shooting of Jacob Blake and the protests that followed. This is a hard one to tackle. Another heartbreaking video of what happened. If you're unaware of what went down, Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times by a police officer in front of his three children. And following the shooting, the town of Kenosha, Wisconsin, has broken out in riots and all-around unrest. Let's really discuss this and the unrest that we're seeing. Yes, we still see that the core of most people protesting are peaceful and their intent is clear. But let's also take time to acknowledge something else. I'm not saying by any means that violent protests are okay, but the violent actions taking place are by people outside of the movement. And let's also address what's really going on here. Yes, we want justice for people like Jacob Blake, just like we want justice for Breonna Taylor. We want to see Jacob Blake's shooter rightfully charged for his wrongdoings. And we want the cops that murdered Breonna Taylor in jail where they belong 
not just fired from their jobs. But see, it's not as simple as a band-aid fix that lawmakers are trying to carry out. We don't just want justice for these individuals. We want the system that allowed for these things to happen in the first place to be held accountable and completely changed. This will not end by a handful of guilty cops being erased from the force. We need to change the system from its core. No more band-aids. We need to make sure these things stop happening over and over and over again. It's not the symptoms that need to be treated, y'all. It's that we need to cut the cancer out altogether. Wow. Yeah. I don't think there's anything left to say. So we're going to be wrapping up here. And we hope that you join us next week. We mentioned this earlier, but we are going to be talking about the school to prison pipeline and the black image and the white mind, which have long lasting connotations in our society and in the systemic oppression that we're wanting to address. So definitely join us next week. Thank you so much for listening and bye.